My name is Al Morton, and it's time for episode six of the Al Morton podcast. Thank you for joining me. This episode, I will be nominating Priti Patel for the Nobel Prize for Services to Humanity and Compassionate Treatment of Asylum Seekers. I will be showing you how to make your own handy immigrant repelling wave machine using two British warships and leftover mattresses from the Nightingale Hospitals. I will be talking to Miley Cyrus's alter ego about veganism together with more tales from Spain. Finally, there are guitar anecdotes. This week we discover which guitars are the loudest and what not to play at a vicar's tea party. We have got a lot to get through. So without much more of ado, let's get this podcast done. And oh dear, it's not been a very good week, has it? We've had Boris Johnson's father, Stanley Johnson, photographed in a shop without his mask. My goodness. <laughs> of course, some of us think he should have worn better protection in 1963. Uh, th- then also the uh, Scottish MP, Margaret Ferrier, who travelled to Parliament knowing that she was infected with uh, COVID-19, used public transport. She was told that her test was positive, but she just didn't feel that the rules uh, applied to her really either. And where have we heard that before? Oh yes, that's right. Would it surprise you to know that the Conservative Party got a concept of beauty? No, it's not Pretty Patel. Cummings. <laughs> so this brings me nicely to the theme of this podcast, really, which is laws. Are they really just for other people? I mean, if you're rich, posh, extreme right-wing evangelist, you don't need to obey the law, do you? I mean, i give you an example. I, I, I woke up on Thursday and discovered that I was about to become a citizen of a rogue state. And I don't say that lightly. I'm just going to read you what the definition is. According to the Oxford Dictionary, a rogue state, a nation or state regarded as breaking international law and posing a threat to the security of other nations. Does that sound familiar? It blinking well should do, because this is what Boris Johnson campaigned on and won a landslide election victory based on getting Brexit done. We have to get Brexit done. And the way to do this was by his version of the withdrawal agreement, the Theresa May one, which uh, had some kind of curious backstop that was certainly not good enough. And he'd come up with this really strange idea of putting a border down the middle of the Irish Sea. Uh, absolute harebrained. And the EU said, well, OK, well, if you want to agree that, fine. But what we what we didn't know was at the time he had his fingers crossed behind his back. So the UK Parliament has essentially voted to become a banana republic, if you like. And I'm guessing that the main advantage of this is going to be that at least we won't have to worry about making sure all our bananas are straight. In other news, we learn that Donald Trump and Melania have also been infected with the virus. Have they? Not according to Twitter conspiracy theorists, anyway, 
who think that after that last appalling face-off with Joe Biden, that maybe he was playing for the sympathy vote and would emerge triumphant and strong, having subdued the dreaded COVID. A bit like our own British Prime Minister, really, Boris Johnson, who, uh, despite having boasted that he had visited a hospital and shaken hands with patients, then went on to catch the infection himself, got pretty sick with it, uh, as as I understand, made a full recovery and uh, spawned the uh, Easter Sunday headlines in the popular press. He is risen. <laughs> and I was thinking that <laughs> we, we shouldn't be too unkind, really, because they're uh, both in a high-risk group. I mean, both Donald and Boris, they're old, obese, and by their own uh, admission, in a low-income group. Donald Trump's last tax return, I think, <laughs> in the year that he entered the White House, he paid only $750 in taxes out of uh, 10 of the 15 years before that. Zero. Zip. Zilch. Nada. At least that's uh, what the New York Times had to say about it. Which does cast doubt over his patriotism, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, really, true patriot would pay their taxes, wouldn't they? I, I know I would. And I hope you're listening, Rees-Mogg for his hedge fund, which is registered offshore in the Cayman Islands. Oh, case of prees, you don't have to declare your offshore earnings now, do you? That's very convenient, isn't it? Thanks to Brexit. And the same really with Boris Johnson, who's trying to struggle by on 150000 a year. He's got um, a very messy divorce, six kids to support and by all accounts according to the telegraph he can't even afford to pay a nanny and has to pay for his own dinners in number 10 it just gets worse and worse so i don't like to get too political in these podcasts but there are a couple of things i wanted to say and uh, not least of which is this uh I mean, if I were to say to you, blue sky thinking, what comes to mind? I mean, I live in Spain, so when we talk about blue skies, we're normally thinking about something else. <laughs> but not so when it comes to the brilliant minds that sit around the cabinet table. And I'm thinking in particular of uh, Priti Patel, British Secretary of State for the Home Office, who's been wrestling with the dilemma of what to do with all these pesky blooming foreigners that keep coming to the UK and uh, the latest brilliant idea is that we just ship them off to the Ascension Islands it's only 4,000 miles away really just around the block or perhaps we can put them in hotels on these abandoned cruise liners anyway as far away from the UK as possible although there are practical issues obviously and this is where the blue sky thinking really kicks in, because one of the suggestions was that uh, they they built some kind of huge wave machine which they could attach to the side of British warships, I suppose. And these machines would create such big waves that the dinghies would not be able to pass from the French side to into British waters. They would turn around and maybe settle down in France. 
Who knows, perhaps they could learn French and brush up on their surfing skills. Talk about the cruel sea. And I'm just left thinking, what kind of person have you got to be to think that it's okay to treat people like that? And I don't want to denigrate Pretty Patel too much. She, uh, I'm sure she does an excellent job when <laughs> no one's looking. But, I, I mean, I did see her described as the sort of person that would... Uh, she would unplug a life support machine in order to charge up her phone. Thank you, Alexis Sale, for that. <laughs> oh, dear. Right, that's enough doom and gloom. <laughs> We're going to talk about something else now. One of the things that I like to talk about... And if you get a chance to swing by my blog, almorton.com, I talk about vegetarianism and uh, the way that's represented in the press. And something caught my eye um, last week, and it was Miley Cyrus. I don't know if you remember her, Hannah Montana, but um, more recently, the uh, the blonde lady that, uh, I don't know if lady's putting it quite right, uh, she, she did a a fairly raunchy video called Wrecking Ball. It's a thoughtful and sophisticated, profound piece of music, of which I've yet to be able to do true justice when I play it on the guitar. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, uh, spoiler alert, I'm not going to be playing it at the end of this podcast. So the headline that caught my eye in that uh, giant amongst vegan publications, plantbasednews.org, Miley Cyrus ditches veganism, saying her brain wasn't functioning properly. Now, I'm so much sharper than I was, and I think that I was at one point pretty malnutritioned. It gets worse. Cyrus, who ditched animal products in 2013, revealed to Rogan that she is experimenting a lot with her diet and exercise regime, and that the prospect of leaving veganism is terrifying. She said her first foray into eating animals again was in 2019 when her husband, Liam Hemsworth, barbecued her some fish. (laughs) Oh, it goes on. Rogan told Cyrus the vegans would come for her after admitting she now eats animals and the singer replied, They will come for me, but it's okay. I'm used to people coming for me. Listen, I give home. I have 22 animals on my farm in Nashville and I got 22 in my house in Calabasas. Like I'm doing what I need to do for the animals, okay? <laughs> like I'm doing what I need to do for the freaking animals, okay? <laughs> I, I suppose keeping animals is on your farm, 22 of them in each. It's, that's got to be better than eating them, surely. Uh, that should at least pacify the vegetarians, if not the, the vegans. <laughs> anyway, my apologies for the uh, terrible Miley Cyrus impression. <laughs> or, or was it? <laughs> the article goes on to discuss the link between veganism and brain function. But I, I, I couldn't help that the feeling that the Miley Cyrus brain function problems probably have uh, less to do with... Um, what she's eating and maybe other things, which I don't want to get sued for saying. So <laughs> other things anyway. <laughs> so before I go on, I better uh, apologise to any um, Miley Cyrus fans. I, I'm not going to ruin that great classic uh, wrecking ball by trying to do a, a jazz guitar version of it or a Burt Bacharach version of it. Uh, I thought I, I must admit I was tempted to strum through the chords a little bit. And there are some interesting things harmonically going on. Although I think 
if I was to do the video in a maybe in a white pair of pants or something, I don't think it'd have the same effect. And also, I would probably be the wrecking ball. <laughs> and the reason I bring this up is that there seems to be a lot of anti-vegan sentiment in the right-wing press. And I, I think that's a bit of a shame, really. I, I don't know what it is. They think that uh, people who want to be kind to animals and prefer a plant-based diet, I don't understand why uh, anyone should feel threatened by them, but uh, it just seems to be a fact of life. And this breaks down to what I think is there's basically two types of people that become a vegetarian or a vegan and I'm going to nail my colours to the mast here and say that I'm a vegetarian, but I'm not a vegan, though I admire those who are, and I aspire to live a plant-based life. But the problem is that when people set out on the road of veganism, very often they, they underestimate what a challenge it is, because we have become, uh, meat is absolutely in everything. I, I walked along the Isle of uh, Iceland the other day and I, th and I couldn't find virtually any product in any of the freezers that didn't have some form of chicken in it or mechanically recovered meat. It's just, we, it's like a drug. It is everywhere. And I think to myself, well, why do we need to eat this? We could eat a lot simpler. And the reason I picked on Miley Cyrus, apart from the the brain reference, which was was quite funny, was that at one point she said, uh, "I became malnutritioned." <laughs> if that's that's not even a word, but why does she have malnutrition? I mean, has she seen anyone who's who's got malnutrition? It's it's horrible. I can tell you. And what possible excuse could there be for someone who has all those resources that she's got the best dietitians at her disposal. There's no reason why a big star like Miley Cyrus should be uh, suffering with malnutrition. And so I don't accept that. I, and I just think that this boils down to the two reasons that people become vegetarians. I think one is that uh, it's attention seeking. It's, oh, look at me. I'm special. I don't eat meat, by the way. And, uh, and then there's the people who... People like me, I, I mean, I'm probably not a great advert for uh, vegetarianism. <laughs> I'm not especially healthy looking. And the reason that I prefer a vegetarian diet is because I care about animals. I, I genuinely don't think we have the right to, just in the same way as we don't have the right to enslave humans, we don't have the right to enslave animals either. So it's just a question of principle and kindness. So the section of society that uh, declare themselves attention-seeking vegans, they tend to go for the extreme end. It's like, look at me, and I'm okay with that. It's great. You know, if, if it saves a few animals, fantastic. But also, uh, my argument against veganism is that it is hard to do, and I'm not sure what the exact numbers are, but I think it's something like 70% of people who try and go down the vegan route, end up giving up because it's not easy. And if if you then go back to eating meat, then that's, you know, what have you done? What have you achieved, really? And for someone like uh, Miley Cyrus, it doesn't matter, really. I mean, Rich, it, <laughs> but it does matter because she is an Instagram influencer. People look up to her. They pay attention to what she's doing, just in the same way as... 
Boris Johnson might say, well, you know, if uh, it doesn't suit me to to honour this uh, international treaty that I've uh, signed up to and agreed to because I choose not to do it anymore. It just basically means that you have no honour. It means anyone can do what they like. And that's the, really the theme of this podcast. I mean, Dominic Cummings driving to Barnard Castle whilst infected with COVID-19. Stanley Johnson refusing to wear a mask on London transport or when in a shop. Margaret Ferrier, MP, using public transport after being diagnosed with COVID-19. And even government scientist, even Neil Ferguson scientist, even moments have scientist, scientist. He'd been lecturing the public on social distancing. There is this sense that, oh, well, it doesn't matter. They did it. So it should be okay if I do it. And it's the same with declaring yourself a vegan. And then once you have a few difficulties with it, for whatever reason, I find it very hard to be a vegan. Then to turn around and say, oh, well, it doesn't suit me anymore. Oh, I'm having brain trouble. (laughs) Brain trouble. (laughs) So my apologies if I upset anyone. But that is the way it is. it'd be a good idea to tell you something about what it's like when you first move to Spain. Prepared to be amazed. (laughs) And uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I made a pig's ear of absolutely everything. It was such a culture shock moving to this country. First of all, the difference in climate was astonishing and, and a little frightening, really. But more importantly, I'd severely underestimated how difficult it was going to be to acquire the language skills needed to be able to just cope with normal day-to-day life. Uh, Despite my wife and the kids and myself having Spanish lessons before we came here, uh, it was surprisingly difficult. And when you're that, that little bit older, you do find these things more challenging. And one of the myths that Uh, People say to you things like, oh, well, the kids will pick up Spanish in no time. You know, they'll be fluent within, I don't know, a couple of weeks or something. (laughs) That is a lie. So uh, my youngest son was four years old and my older boy was uh, seven, I think, when we arrived. My wife will correct me on that. And (laughs) we put them straight into Spanish school. There was none of this private education for us. And the younger boy, he found it a little bit easier, but there was one problem. In this part of Spain, the local language is Valenciano, and that is the language that they speak in the local schools. They they still do. So even though we'd done some borderline preparation to arrive here, we just, we couldn't understand what they were saying <laughs> But over time, I improved my Spanish. I I wouldn't say that I'm super fluent at the moment. (laughs) I'm still working on it. And the children do speak pretty good Spanish. But even then, there are times when uh, we'll go to a meeting or watch a news item or something. And I will say to my older son, what are they saying? And he would look back at me and say, oh, beats me. (laughs) And that's after 17 years. So (laughs) a common... A common problem, and I see this, I still see this all the time, even now, is that our cultures are 
very different. I mean, we do have a lot of things in common as well. I, I think the Spanish sense of humour is just great. And uh, we can yeah, we can say funny things to each other and get the same jokes. But there are some things that are very, very different. And uh, one of the things is that I notice is that uh, if you meet somebody, if you yeah, met someone that you know in, in the street, and uh, if, it, if it was a British person, for example, and you said, oh, hello, how are you? They would go, I'm fine, thank you. Not, not so much with... Uh, some of some some of my friends that like we would meet and I would say oh how how are you and he said oh oh I'm gl- I'm glad you asked I've got terrible headache I I I think it's my period did I did I tell you about my back trouble <laughs> and they give you an honest answer to an honest question and I spoke to my uh, assessor my accountant about this and I said oh that really is a big difference isn't it and he said. Well, if you don't want to hear the answer, why ask the question? In the early days, uh, I carried on. We all did. We went to have Spanish lessons. You have to. You need to uh, learn to speak the language as a matter of urgency. And there are all these things that come up to do with school. And uh, school is a, a big, big subject. I'm, I might talk about that in a, in a different podcast. But... I went to a, a local language school and started to improve my Spanish. And then one day they announced that there was going to be a, a paella competition. Now, one of my problems with being British is that we think that we're universally brilliant at everything. So I I had done a bit of cooking. I I'd cooked some what I thought were pretty good paellas in the past. So I said, yeah, OK, I'll do it. And I I brought with me the Jamie Oliver approach to making paella. But what they really wanted was a paella that was cooked in exactly the same way as it had done for the last 200 years. Uh, My little class, we got together in in this uh, picnic area and there was about five or six different teams. Well, more than that, actually. And a uh, great big pan of pie. Got made, made some nice stock and started cooking this uh, this dish. And the, the judge, judges came round, and I had this thing under control. I was quite pleased with it, really. And she sticks a spoon in it, and then takes a little bit, and then her, this look of thunder crosses her face. <laughs> she she says, "Oh, <laughs> what 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 is this?" Do, do English people cook their paellas so that the rice is all hard and crusty on the top? <laughs> and uh, and then another one stuck the spoon in it and said, "Oh my God, he's put cilantro in it!" Oh, <laughs> and then there was a immediate like uh, a huddled group, and then uh, one of them said to me, "You're disqualified." I got disqualified for putting uh, uh, cilantro and coriander in my paella. It's forbidden. <laughs> anyway, I do note with interest. And she said, and, and what, what family recipe is this? And I said, well, I think it's, it's Andaluth. And she, she said, I don't think they would eat this in Andalusia. And I said, well, I think you'll find they do. <laughs> she said, no, 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 no. No, what you have made is a very nice rice dish, but it's not Paella. <laughs> so the upshot of this was that uh, 
I found myself becoming obsessed with how to make the perfect paella. And <laughs> paella, sorry. My wife keeps correcting me on that, by the way. <laughs> it's very English, isn't it, to say paella, but it's not. It's paella. And, <laughs> well, I lost my thought now. All oh, right, yeah. So I, I kept kept working at it. I watched lots of videos and uh, read lots of Spanish recipe books and I, th- I think I got pretty good at making uh, this rice dish. And I invited some uh, Spanish friends of mine around uh, who I'd known for a while. And we all sat down and I brought this big pan out and set it down. And it, they, uh, you know, it, I could see, I could see her looking at it. And uh, I served up this, this dish and I thought it was okay. Silence. <laughs> Silencio. <laughs> And they didn't say anything after they ate it. And I thought, oh, I don't know. I don't think they liked it. Uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, I saw them <laughs> uh, 10 years later. <laughs> and uh, we were having a drink in a bar. And she said, that paella you cooked, that was quite good, really, wasn't it? For an Englishman. <laughs> OK, it's got to be time for another guitar story. And before I came to Spain, a long time ago, 17 years ago, uh, I played with a a very fine guitarist called Mike Britton. And uh, in the period leading up to that, I was lucky enough to have tuition from him and I would go over to his house and he had a... He still does have a thing about cats. (laughs) I think it's the only reason he wants to come to Spain, really, because we've got so many cats. And... (laughs) He had this cat called Fatang, and I could tell that the cats didn't really like me visiting to um, have my guitar lesson because I, I kept Dobermans, and uh, as we all know, cats and dogs don't really get on very well. And my guitar case and my clothes would have smelled of dog. And, uh, this was an unwelcome intrusion on the uh, Mike Britton household, at least as far as his cats were concerned. I had this, um, I still have it, uh, 1949 uh, Gibson guitar, a beautiful old arch top. And that's what I used to take to my lesson. I'd take it out of its case. I'd leave the case in the hall because the studio was very small. And we would play. And at the end of the class, I thank him very much. I give him some money, put the guitar back in its case, and off we go. Uh, so he used to do quite a few depths. And he phoned me up and says, oh, would, I, would, I, would I mind covering one of his gigs for him? And uh, I said, no, 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 that's, that's okay. So he said, you know, it's a, a black tie event, you know, you need to look, smarten yourself up a bit. Okay, no problem. So I find my way to this, this gig. I think it was in the pump rooms in Bath or somewhere like that, somewhere very posh anyway, and they're all in their frocks. And uh, I've got my dicky bow tie and my white shirt and uh, the, I arrived late as usual. The band already said, where are you? Where are you? Come on, come on, come on, come on, I'm going to start. So I picked my guitar out of its case, plugged it in, no time to sound check or even tune the damn thing. And uh, they launched straight into their opening number and I'm playing away. And uh, I'm suddenly aware of this horrible smell. <laughs> it's really, really unpleasant. And I realised that uh, I looked down and my white shirt and my dress shirt 
it's got a big brown patch down the front of it. And I realise that what has happened is that his uh, Mike Britton's cat has got its final revenge on me and it must have unloaded in my guitar case. I must have put my guitar on top of it and then shot off to do this gig. And, you know, to this day, I still can't get the humiliation or the, that smell out of my nostrils. <laughs> so despite the smell of cat do, it was uh, still um, a welcome improvement over the music that they decided to play that night. Oh, my goodness. So I learned two lessons that night. One was that it's always a good idea to keep uh, a spare dress shirt when you go out on posh gigs. And the other is that... When you're visiting your friends and your guitar is out of its case and he's got cats, keep the damn case closed. <laughs> when I used to play with Mike, I was always a little bit intimidated by him. I mean, he's he's such an amazing guitarist and I really felt like I could just about keep up with him. And very often we would do these duet gigs and... Uh, it would all depending on what mood he was in, and and it, the gig would either go well or it would go badly. But it would always go badly if he had some negative interaction with the audience before we started. And I, it would always be something like some someone would come up to him and say, "Oh, um, that's an interesting guitar. Well, what what strings do you use, mate?" And he would say, "Well, I I use all of them. Why don't you?" Oh, he would. Other times they would come up to him and ask if, oh, please don't ever ask if they could ha- play on his guitar. And that was that, that would bring down the Iron Curtain because he would, uh, he would look at them in absolute uh, shock and say, What? You want to play my guitar? And they say, Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we, what, what sort of guitar is it? And he was saying, well, it's it's a white one. Uh, the guy in the music shop said that the, uh, the, the red ones were a bit louder, but I thought I'd go for the white. And then we would start playing, and then the trouble would really start. <laughs> and this was the case one summer's afternoon when we'd been booked to play at a, a vicar's tea party. And on the way down, he'd been telling me how he'd had a bit of bother with the tax people because they, they'd said to him that uh, they weren't really happy with his tax returns and that he was trying to claim too much. Um, I mean, look at this, for example, Mr. Britton. I mean, you're claiming, you know, something like £300 for, uh, just on strings. Surely that can't be right. And Mike said, yeah, it, it is right. I've, I've, I've got quite a few guitars. I've got a 12-string for a start. I mean, that, they've got loads of strings. And the taxman said, well, didn't, didn't they all have strings on when you bought them? <laughs> Big mistake. So <laughs> we arrive at the uh, Vickers Tea Party. We're a little bit late, as usual. And uh, No, actually, I was late. Uh, I was late picking him up. He, he's never late for anything. And... <laughs> And the, we were greeted by the vicar's wife. I've got to go off and prepare fairy cakes or something. And off she flounces and points at wherever it is that we're supposed to play, uh, you know, in the middle of some lawn where there's no electricity or anything. And <laughs> um, I bring up the matter. Well, what what are we going to plug our equipment into? And she, and she was like, Oh, um, 
Um, what? Do you have to plug your guitars in? I hope it's not going to be too loud. <laughs> I said, yes, we have to plug our guitars in. <laughs> and uh, we, start, we start playing anyway. And we don't, we don't really see the vicar's wife until we're on our first break. And she, she sort of swans over. She says, oh, oh, marvellous. Thank you so much. Everyone's saying how much they love the music. She, you know, my daughter, she, she, she plays the violin. And Mike's really in a bit of a grumpy mood by now because he's hungry. And uh, he feels like he's been messed around a little bit. And, and uh, he says, and uh, what sort of violin does she play? Oh, I don't know. Um, but she's very, very, very good. <laughs> You're probably detecting a, a common theme here. And uh, and Mike had just about had enough and said, well, I would slam a hand in a taxi cab door then because I can't stand people that are very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> she looked at him as if, like, he'd landed from another planet. And then uh, she said, um, I, I, anyway, I, I missed your first set. Uh, uh, what instruments do you play? And I knew that this was going to be trouble. And she, he looked at her and he said, Madam, I would have thought that the sound of the bagpipes was quite distinct enough. <laughs> so she makes a semi-dignified exit. And uh, it's past the hat brown time and uh, it's made clear to us that there should be some background music, quite background music, while people put money into the hat to raise money for the church roof. And Mike looks to me and says... We better play pennies from heaven. <laughs> and off he goes. So that's it from me for now, and thank you for listening. I thought I would play us out with my version of Pennies from Heaven, which I used to play with Mike Britton. I would also like to thank him for allowing me to share with you some of our stories of our time on the road together. haven't gone yet. I just wanted to remind listeners that details of these shows, including music credits and links, are available on almorton.com forward slash takeout. Scroll down the page to the player for the current show, then click on the link below. Later shows include a full transcript. was written, performed, and produced by all more. <laughs> Stay on the line for a quick taster of what's coming up in Episode 7, Aardvarks. There's a cat in the book. Oh, is there? I said, yes, there is. <laughs> oh, well, that's completely different then, isn't it? <laughs> so, so, so does the, does the cat uh, solve the mystery? No, it, it's a it's a cat. <laughs> I mean, it plays a very important role, though. Oh, oh, all right. What what what's the cat's name? 
His name is Klinger. And then without any hint of irony, she said, Ooh, that rings a bell. <laughs> Fantastic. You know, I've got to tell you, in all candour, it's going to continue to be bumpy through to Christmas. It may even be, may even be bumpy beyond. But this is the only way to do it. Except that it didn't really work out like that. You're fired. All this and more in episode 7 of the Al Morton Takeout Aardvarks. <laughs>